welcome to you all. My name is Helen Gaston, and I'm the current president of the Niebuhr Society, as well as a lecturer on American religious history here at HDS. Thank you all for being here tonight at this special screening and discussion of an American conscience, the Reinhold Niebuhr story, which will begin to air on PBS in April of this year. After we view this compelling film, we'll have a panel discussion featuring Martin Dobel, the filmmaker Martin Dobelmeyer, project director Andrew Fenstuen, Professor Cornell West, and myself. I'll give the panelists proper introductions once we screen the film, and then they'll take some, have some time for brief reflections before we begin taking questions from you. Please be sure to stay with us for what promises to be a lively and informative discussion. And it's now my pleasure to introduce our gracious host, the Dean of Harvard Divinity School, David Hempton. Thanks, Helen. I kind of like these bar stools, actually. I just, <laughs> just sit on them. Um, so it's my pleasure as, as Dean of the uh, Divinity School to welcome you to this very special evening in great numbers. Thanks for coming. This is tr a, a truly one Harvard event, and we're delighted to be partnering with the uh, uh, Charles Warren Center, the Safra Center, the Harvard Colloquium for Intellectual History, Center for American Political Studies, Department of African and African American Studies, History Department, and the Committee on the Study of Religion. So that range of partnerships is itself, I think, an indication um, of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's influence and significance, um, uh, not just obviously uh, in this university, but right across the country and the world. I especially want to welcome our panelists, who will be properly introduced later, and will be sitting on these nice bar stools, as well as our special guests, uh, uh, Gustav uh, Niebuhr and his wife Margaret, sitting here in the front. Um, uh, Richard Parker of the Harvard Kennedy School, I saw coming in in the way, uh, Richard. Um, and I, I especially want to thank um, uh, HDS's Helen Gaston for organizing, moderating this event, um, herself a notable scholar in this uh, whole area. So thank you so much for bringing this together. So tonight we will explore the remarkable career and the many contributions of Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the towering American theologians of the 20th century. As we will see, Niebuhr was both a product of his time and a visionary with lessons for our own day. A prolific writer, an inspired preacher, and an, ad an, an agile thinker, Niebuhr traveled a great distance in his lifetime from a German-speaking immigrant community in Missouri to cosmopolitan New York and then to the centers of American power and influence. He penned many canonical books in multiple um, uh, areas, influenced legions of religious and secular thinkers with his call for a return to the classical understanding of human nature as deeply sinful. Niebuhr helped so many Americans make sense of a tumultuous period in world history, during the age of two world wars and then the struggle against the Soviet Union during um, the Cold War. In our own moment of political turmoil, the virtues that Niebuhr called upon American leaders to cultivate, uh, humility, introspection, <laughs> fallibilism, <laughs> courage, wisdom, and a devotion to justice, alas, have been in very short supply uh, recently. To change our political culture, we must demand and reward these virtues in our leaders, even as we work to enshrine them in ourselves. In this context, Niebuhr's story can inspire us to action, 
even as it reminds us to remain ever mindful of our own flaws and shortcomings. It's particularly appropriate that we're holding this event here at HDS. This institution has a special and long-standing relationship with the Niebuhr family. Uh, Professor Emeritus Richard Reinhold Niebuhr, known as Dick Niebuhr, and the son of Reinhold's brother, H. Richard, taught at HDS for over four decades, um, over 40 years uh, here. And Dick Niebuhr's son, Gustav, um, here with us tonight, maintains close ties to HDS. As many of you know, he's the author of the important book, Beyond Tolerance, Searching for Interfaith Understanding in America, uh, whose time has come, which has been and remains a central concern for all of us uh, here at HDS. Moreover, the letters of H. Richard Niebuhr and other Niebuhr materials are here in the Andover Harvard Theological Library, 25 boxes of them, uh, a treasure trove for all those interested in this uh, remarkable and distinguished family. And so without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce to you um, Martin Doblemeyer, the filmmaker who has made the story of Reinhold newly relevant to a 21st century audience. So thank you so much for your film and for honoring us with your presence. Uh, we look forward to a great evening. Thank you. We have a round of applause for all the work that you did, Healing. Um, I, I've been doing films on religion, faith, and spirituality for 30 years. Uh, maybe some of you saw the, the film I did on Dietrich Bonhoeffer a number of years ago. I see some heads nodding, thank you. Um, and uh, when I went in to public television to propose the idea that I wanted to do a film on Reinhold Niebuhr, I went into the room, and these are very smart people, well-informed well people, who didn't have a clue in the world who Reinhold Niebuhr was. And they're sitting here, um, all of them had printed out copies of Reinhold Niebuhr from Wikipedia. And that was kind of the starting place for this conversation. Can you believe it? So um, I, I, I honestly, I felt as though I used up every chip I had created over the last 30 years with public television to be able to get them to say, okay, let's, let's get this thing going and see what happens because religion is a tricky topic to talk about on television, especially on national public television. And politics, the combination of religion and politics, you're, you're playing with fire. And they said, okay, we'll take a look at this. And, I, and I'm thrilled to say that after we finished the film and, and presented the rough cut, I went back into them and I showed them the rough cut. And they said, tell you what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you a time at the National Public Television Convention to show this, to get everybody else in America excited about this. I think we have something here. No tribute to me. It's really a tribute to the story of that man, Reinhold Niebuhr, the story of the Niebuhr family. Um, we got the cooperation and support of Elizabeth Sifton, um, Reinhold's daughter. And so that balance of trying to tell a story for mainstream America, you know, you're, many of you here are theology students, and this is the material that you live with every single day. But for the national public television audience, this needs to be both, a, you know, have some theological grit to it, but also it has to have a story. And they care about the emotion, the person of Reinhold Niebuhr. So my, my challenge really was to see how I could blend those things together into a coherent hour-long film. So as Helen mentioned, it's gonna be airing nationally on public television uh, beginning of the first of, of April. I'm delighted all of you came out. Be honest, how many of you came out tonight? Not so much about Reinhold Niebuhr, because tonight's the first night you get to see uh, Cornell West in a public venue. <laughs> all right, not so many. So, <laughs> 
Um, I, I hope that you're in for a treat. I look forward to being part of the panel. One of the great joys for this last year is to be able to associate with really tremendous smart people who've taught me so much about my own faith tradition and how it intersects with the world that we live in, especially since January 20th. Thank you. All right, so I should have mentioned earlier that um, Cornell West is finishing teaching his seminar, which ends at 7. <laughs> so he is headed our way, um, but it may take him a few more minutes to get here. Um, and so we will await his arrival. Um, we have just come actually from Union Theological down in New York, um, where we did a screening um, of this film. And it's exciting to be here at Harvard to share it with you all. Um, I should also mention that um, I'm going to serve tonight as a sort of combined moderator um, and participant in this conversation. Um, so I think what we'll do is go ahead and start the introductions and then Martin and, Jer and Martin and Andrew can tell us more about their involvement with this project and then when Cornell gets here he can tell us a little bit more about his, his process with this project. Um, so uh, my name is Helen Gaston, as I said before. I'm a lecturer on American religious history at HDS. Um, I work on the religious history of modern America, religious pluralism, the history of ethics, um, my research to date has focused on the concept of a Judeo-Christian tradition, debates around pluralism and secularism, and the writings of Reinhold Niebuhr and his brother H. Richard Niebuhr. I was the senior advisor on this film, and I'm so pleased to see so many of you here tonight for this Harvard premiere. All right, so Martin Doblemeyer here on the end. Martin is an Emmy award-winning filmmaker who has devoted his career to raising the visibility of religious subjects and religious voices in American public culture. To that end, he has made a series of highly regarded documentaries, including Bonhoeffer, The Power of Forgiveness, and most recently, prior to the Niebuhr Project, Chaplains on the Front Lines of Faith. He has degrees in religious studies and journalism, has been awarded two honorary doctorates, and is the driving force behind Journey Films. Aha! <laughs> Greetings, Cornell. Come join us. Hello. Good to see you. All right. All right. So next we have um, Andrew Fenstuen. He's a historian of American religion and the project director for the film. He comes to us from Boise State University, where he's the dean of the Honors College and the interim vice provost. He launched his academic administrative career at the, as the assistant director of the Boise Center for Religion and American Public Life at Boston College. His writings include the 2009 book, Original Sin and Everyday Protestants, The Theology of Reinhold Niebuhr, Billy Graham, and Paul Tillich in an Age of Anxiety, which won the Brewer Prize from the American Society of Church History. He also co-directed the Worlds of Billy Graham project and co-edited the corresponding volume of Billy Graham, American Pilgrim, which is forthcoming with Oxford in 2017. Now I'm sure that Cornell West is a familiar figure to all of you, since graduating from Harvard College and then the Princeton Philosophy Department, he has written numerous books, including Race Matters and Democracy Matters, and contributed in so many other ways to American public discourse as well. He is one of the leading, the best-known progressive voices in America today and a leading public intellectual. And as of this semester, he has taken up a position here at Harvard, at HDS, and the Department of African and African American Studies. We are thrilled to have him back. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. 
So what I want to do here with this session is to just get the ball rolling a little bit um, with a couple of questions for each of the panelists, and then we're going to open this conversation up. We know that you all have a lot of things that you want to ask as well, and we want to make sure there's plenty of time. So I'm going to start with Martin. Um, Martin, I'm curious to know from you, what was the most exciting thing about this project, and what was the most challenging? How does this compare to past projects that you've done? And what role can documentary film play in moments like the ones we're living through? I'm, I'm glad you gave us the questions in advance. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, I want to say first, uh, thank you um, for coming out tonight. I have, a, I have a special thanks that I want to pay to, to somebody who was uh, uh, very helpful to me. You know, I, I have, I've studied religion, I've been doing all these films, but every time you enter into a storyline, you realize how much you have to learn about every one of these every one of these stories and this one is absolutely uh, the best example of that and one of the people who was a great consultant to me in the, in the whole process of making this is Jeremy Sabala. Jeremy would you stand up? Jeremy has his PhD in, Reinhold, in studies on Reinhold Niebuhr and um, has was a consultant almost every day to me in the process of making the film and uh, has, in the, has finished off now what will be a companion book to this film called An American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story. And there will be forms outside to be able to get copies in advance of uh, the book, which comes out in? Uh, it comes out March 27th. Yeah, March 27th from Erdman's, and uh, we're, we're thrilled about that. So thank you, Jeremy. You were a part of it, such a big part of that. <laughs> when you... Um, when you agree that you're going to do a film on somebody that uh, you've read since college, and I, really an iconic figure, that becomes really, uh, it, it really, there's something inside that just sort of happens that you realize what you're taking on. Uh, and you become nervous about it, and you want to do the best possible job you can. Uh, and then when you get deep, deeper into it, you realize this is a man who wrote 24 books, 2,500 articles, the opus, the body of his work is enormous. And, um, it, it become, at some point it becomes overwhelming. And yet, as a filmmaker, on the other side of it, the number of photographs, the material that's actually there, is really less than I imagined it would be. And so one of the great challenges for us was how can we tell this as a visual story, this is a visual medium that I'm working in, in, in such a way that it doesn't become a, a, like the, a, a movie about a book, but in fact becomes the life story of this particular individual. That was probably the hardest challenge for all of us to take on, but we were able to dig and mine and find the storylines. But I also want to say that uh, the two gentlemen that are here this evening and all the people that we uh, asked to be interviewed in the film, I, I, I thought they just did a terrific job. A couple of people said to me, you know, these people seemed alive and interested in it. And I think you all could see um, how much they wanted to talk about Reinhold Niebuhr. This is a man who died 45 years ago, and yet still in, in such a, an incredible way, he's very much alive within them, each one of them in their own particular way. And they all have their own neighbors. Um, and as long as I was able to sit down and have a conversation, prepared conversation with each one of them, I just did everything I could to draw that out of them. But boy, I'll tell you, from the very beginning, it was there. And that, I think, was both the challenge, but also, too, the most exciting part of all of it. About documentary films, I think documentary films are probably uh, one of the few um, free kind of art forms in America today. We, I, I hope in the next few years documentary films will continue to play a major role in this country, that there will be av avenues and opportunities for them to say the truth, because I think in my own particular case, just so you all understand, I, I didn't do this for anybody else except for us. 
Um, I did this for public television, which remains one of the only venues in America where I can actually come up with an idea, present it, like I told you, even if I, as long as I can get it through the, you know, the panels to get this film on the air, I can do it the way I need to do it, tell the story I believe I should be, tell, uh, should be telling, and get that onto television. That's really rare on the landscape of television, not only in this country, but anywhere in the world. And so for me, I hope that format continues because we're going to need that, I think, in the next number of years ahead. Yes, very well put. Thank you so much. Um, let's ask Andrew this question, just to get a better perspective on how this all came about. Um, what about the project? Like, how did you decide to tackle this? How did you pull it off? What lessons can others in this audience take away from your experience as the head of this project? What has surprised you the most in the process of making this film? Well, I also want to offer my thanks to Jeremy and thanks to Helen for organizing this event and thanks to Dr. West and all who participated. I'll maybe take the, the last part of the question first, which is what was most surprising. Uh, I didn't have to do the, the challenging work of, of figuring out with few images how to make a film, a visual film about an author, but uh, what was surprising to me was how few obstacles there were on my side of the street. In other words, every, every step of the way, people said yes. We didn't get a single no, with the exception, exception of uh, President Barack Obama's Office of uh, Faith Initiatives, which we understand he had a lot of other things to do in the last fall uh, as we were leading up to this film. But it was, and that's a testimony to Niebuhr's thought. It's not a testimony to anything I've done. It's just I asked the question. Really what happened, the genesis of this project, I was just tired of not seeing an American Experience film or something like that on Reinhold Niebuhr who offers a counter-narrative to American history in the 20th century, his, his provocative and powerful thought, and so on. And so I just got, I was just impatient. I have no business making the film or thinking I could achieve this, but I just got tired of it. And so I guess if there's any lesson, for, especially for maybe some students, it was just, I got tired of it, and then I asked the question. And uh, a, a sort of mentor of mine said, uh, the answer is always no, unless you ask the question. And so I really did just ask the question, starting with uh, Jeremy and I actually first talked about it and then went from there, various scholars and getting connected to the Lilly Endowment. And so that's really how this came about. Well, it's a tremendous accomplishment. And you and, and Martin deserve a tremendous amount of credit for this work. And we're just so pleased that you took it on. <laughs> um, so Cornell, like I am really struck by just how stunning your performance in this film is. You just really get to the heart and soul of Niebuhr. And, so I was curious to know more about Niebuhr's impact on your own intellectual life. Um, since we've just been down at Union and we've talked with James Cone some, I'm also interested in you know, how you make sense of James Cone's critiques of Niebuhr and the cross and the lynching tree, particularly regarding Niebuhr's limitations on race. Do you think Niebuhr's life and work is relevant today? And if so, how can members of this audience carry that legacy forward in these troubled times? That's a lot, I know. But. Yeah, no, I, let me just first say it's, it's a marvelous film. I've seen it twice in Texas and New York, and it's just a magnificent film. But Ryan Hall Niebuhr changed my life in a fundamental way. Uh, 18 years old, I was in Professor Preston Williams' class, along with Charles Price and Peter Gomes. And when I read Moral Man and Immoral Society, I really did become a different kind of human being. I was shaken to the core. I'd come out of a very rich, black Christian tradition that it wrestled with sin, wrestled with justice, wrestled with power and conflict, but the language that he used, he was a dramatist of ideas and he was a writer of such poetic prose.
that it connected the intellect with heart, mind, and soul, and he had the courage to intervene into the doings and sufferings of his day. And it's true, there's different Nebras. It was the Nebra of 1932 that had the impact on me. And also the 1934 book, Reflections on the End of an Era. That might be a bestseller these days in the Trump years. What it means to come to an end of an era and a new one emerging, that, that very bleak. Uh, Niebuhr was very apocalyptic in the mid-30s. But the Niebuhr that you saw in the film of March 8, 1948, where he's uh, cast as the establishment theologian by Whitaker Chambers, who was the senior editor of Time magazine at that time, at that moment, uh, it's still a Niebuhr of tremendous prophetic force, but it's a very different Niebuhr. He's now settling into the Cold War liberalism that will become pervasive and hegemonic as the American empire moves to the center of the historical stage contested only by the Soviet empire with a devastated Europe. And he's also a figure of the liberal Protestant golden age that is long over in which there was a certain hegemony of Christian sensibility. 91% of Americans viewed themselves as Christian, church-going, looking for spiritual uh, fulfillment in a moment in which there's escalating nuclear catastrophe on the one hand and also the emerging commodified society, market-driven culture on the other. I think that Niebuhr is indispensable. I view him in the same tradition as Emerson, Whitman, Edmund Wilson, Lionel Trilling, uh, James Baldwin, these are towering figures, titans of the life of the mind who must be mobilized in light of our present catastrophic times. And that's a larger issue of how we go about mobilizing. But for me, you know, I, I, can't, I can't live without him. I mean, I may not be the best test because everybody's life is different. But I know personally I couldn't live without Ryan Honey, but no doubt about that. The very reason why I went to Union Seminary in 1977, after Brother Preston, Professor Williams, pushing Niebuhr on me, and I'm pushing back. Rawls and Niebuhr, Rawls and Niebuhr. I said, I got to go to your <coughs> seminary. That's what Niebuhr was. And I'm glad I did. But I'm glad I'm back here. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> Well, that was great. Thank you, guys. Um, so one more question just I'm going to ask to all three of you, and I'm going to actually try to answer this one myself, and then we'll open it up for the rest of the audience to ask their questions. So Andrew and I both have young children. In fact, mine affectionately refer to Reinhold Niebuhr as Rhino, <laughs> which is a nickname that was coined by the, our youngest, who is a toddler. <laughs> and we got to talking, Andrew and I, recently about this question of like what, how we would describe the main takeaway of the film to a child of roughly eight to 10 years old, so the age of our oldest children. So I wanted to pose that question to each of our panelists. If we come away from this film with one impression about Niebuhr's life and work and its meaning for today, what should it be? How would you state it in a way that would be accessible to a 10-year-old? Right. Well, I, um, my wife and I have a 23-year-old who now wants to get into law. He wants to be a, a lawyer. Um, and uh, I, I, was, I would say that um, it's about power. Yeah, I would actually say there's a difference, too. If, if I was thinking in terms of an 8 or a 10-year-old, I think there's a big difference between the way an 8-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy sees the world. 
Um, I think an eight-year-old male, 10-year-old male, uh, it's, for them it's all about power. It really is, that sort of sense, that identity of being powerful for a male. And I think for a female, uh, power means something very different. It's acceptance. They both, they bo on both sides, they want acceptance. That's a fundamental need. But the power becomes a real uh, issue for, for young males. And um, I think what I would go back and say for Niebuhr, because of course our son's raised, and he's actually looked at the film now as a 23-year-old, and he's thinking all about this from the framework of a, of a would-be lawyer. But uh, at, a, as a at an age of 10, I think, uh, probably the notion of that we can be both good and bad. I remember so clearly, I used to, my wife and I talked about this just the other day, because every single night we would go to, uh, go to bed with our son, we'd, I would read to him. And, he, and, he, and uh, I would dramatize everything. I, I might love to sort of play with voices and dramatize the characters. But inevitably, somewhere along the line, our son would ask me the question, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? It was really important for him to know who the good one was in this storyline and who the bad one was in the storyline. And if there's one thing I probably failed to give him is that, that Niberian notion that there's a little bit of both in all of us. We're all, it's not just you bad, me good, but there's a little bit of both in all of us. And um, I think that's, that's the message I think I would focus on if I had him back at eight years old today. I'm happy I don't have him at eight years old today, but, uh, but until I get the law, law school bills, but, and all that'll change then, but uh, I think that's the message I'd go for. Niebuhr's required reading for my seven-year-old and nine-year-old, so. <laughs> I think it's not too different from what Martin said, and it's, it's an interesting question and a good one to think about how we translate. I mean, this was whole part of the project was how do we translate Niebuhr to a larger audience, and uh, I've been thinking about it too, but I, what kept coming up for me is a version of what Martin said around confidence and humility. I may not use those terms precisely, but a sense of self, a sense of the human being as wonderfully capable. Uh, the glories of humanity to make sure that that affirmation is there because that's sometimes what we forget about Niebuhr is there's a lot of affirmation there about what humans are capable of uh, in the positive sense and then there's also uh, a sense of what humans are capable of in the negative sense um, but that that balance of confidence and humility that tension that I think he he walked that that razor-sharp line uh, so well and and then the notion of we see through a glass darkly again I might not say it in those terms exactly but uh, your perspective is your perspective, and as one of my old football coaches used to say, when you point the finger at somebody, three are pointing back at you. Um, to have that, again, it's, a, it's another variation of that confidence and humility, uh, and to be sure that your perspective, as Niebuhr says, no one's perspective looks better than their own, and try to get underneath that. So as they grow up, they'll have that sense of both the ability to assert themselves, but also to pay attention, listen to others, and understand that their perspective is not the sum total of how the world operates. So. That's a tough question, though. It really is. I, uh, I think I would tell my young loved ones, <coughs> Niebuhr is trying to get us to be persons of honesty and decency and integrity. And how can we be honest in such a way that we know we have a fallible and finite journey and therefore will fall on our faces, but we still ought to have strong convictions without a sense of self-righteousness? That we could be persons who are fundamentally committed 
to a decency knowing in fact that we will have blind spots, knowing in fact that we'll try again, fail again, fail better, as Samuel Beckett used to say, and yet bounce back. Now granted, you know, I learned that in vacation Bible school uh, at Shiloh Baptist <laughs> Church, but I could see Niebuhr resonating with those deep commitments to integrity, honesty, and, and, and decent. In fact, they become more and more subversive in an age of mendacity and criminality, which is more and more expanding in our day and time. Well, I'm going to weigh in here on the question and say that um, I think that my read on this might be slightly different. I find that um, I think David Brooks, when he's talking about the extent to which Niebuhr is sort of associated with the concept of sin, I mean, that, I think for a woman scholar especially, that creates a certain set of questions that have to be dealt with, just the extent to which feminist theology, to a large extent, is impelled by a critique of Niebuhr that says, hey, you know, humility isn't the answer for everyone, right? Some people can be crushed, right? Liberation theologians in the same vein are saying, you know, some people can be crushed by this call for humility. Right, and so one of the things I love most about this film is that for me the story about Niebuhr has always actually not been primarily a story about sin, right? It's been primarily a story about power and how it works in the world. Mm -hmm. And so by reorienting that association so that now we're thinking in terms of power in relation to Niebuhr, I find that the, 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 the thing I really would want a young child to take away from this is the view that power is at work everywhere in the world in mysterious and often nefarious ways. But that if we want to understand the workings of power in our world, we have to become committed to understanding the workings of power in ourselves. So I think um, it, it might be great now to hear from you all. <laughs> We've got lots of time left, we wanna hear from you. So please, Preston. I want to make a couple comments that are to the aside. One is that when Cornell came to my class, he'd already read <laughs> uh, I would want also to uh, point out that uh, Niebuhr and his brother served on the committee which recommended that Harvard Divinity School be revived. And we probably would not be here if he had not participated on that committee. And uh, he taught at Harvard Divinity School after he had his uh, stroke. And uh, his brother was planning on coming to Harvard, but unfortunately his brother had a uh, stroke and uh, uh, died. So that when we celebrate our 200th uh, anniversary, we should uh, remember that uh, He's part of us. <laughs> yes. So other questions from the audience? Yes, back here. Yes. Thank you, Thank you so much. Um, I was struck by how it was emphasized that Niebuhr never earned a, an academic doctorate. Um, Karl Barth also never earned an academic doctorate. These are both pastor theologians who had the basic training of a clergy person of their day, but then went on to become leading figures in the, in the academy. So I just wonder if, if we could reflect on that for a moment, in which ways um, is academic theology maybe captive to a certain model of scholarship 
that prohibits it from actually engaging more broadly in the way that Niebuhr did. So any thoughts on that? I'll, I'll just, I, I don't have any claim to this other than to say that uh, I, I think Niebuhr's more the exception than the rule. I don't want anybody to sort of walk away thinking, well, I don't have to be, I don't have to get a, a doctoral in theology to, to be able to talk like this. I think, uh, I, I think it, the, the reason why he got all the honorary doctorates is because he achieved a level of understanding and application that I think really was unique in the world. And I, I just want to add one more thought that uh, uh, just came up in terms of, of Harvard. 1943, uh, right in the heart of World War II, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was offered the opportunity to come here to Harvard. He had been at, at Union for 15 years. And uh, the president at that time offered him a unique position, meaning that he wouldn't have to go through all the certification and the board you know, reviews and everything else like that. They were going to sort of pave a way, particularly because he didn't have a doctoral degree. And they offered him a fair amount of money, apparently, to come up here to Harvard. And his brother, H. Richards, said, you should go. You should take it. First of all, it's going to be additional funding for you, money for you. It's going to be a platform for you to be able to speak out of, you know, out of a context of Harvard. It's going to be terrific for you. And then you'll be, you'll, be, you'll sort of be in the midst of a lot of academic stimulation, new ideas, new places, new people to meet with. And in the end, he turned it down. Coffin came to him, the president of Union, and said, maybe you're right. Maybe we have to up the ante a little bit here at Union. And, and he put more money in the till for the department, but they didn't go to Niebuhr. The money actually brought John Bennett to Union Theological Seminary in 1943. And, and Niebuhr, Niebuhr, Niebuhr never came here except on, as a visiting professor, decided to stay where he was. And he uses the word, when he, when he writes the letter back to say he's not coming, he uses the word, I'm content. And I thought about that, how, how rarely we use that word at all anymore. I'm content. So he knew he wasn't going to be making the same amount of money. How many, t how many people in our culture today will, would leave if the money was, money was better no matter where it was? But Niebuhr says, no, I'm content. I'm planning on staying here. And he would wind up staying there for all, nearly 20 more years. You know, it's fascinating when you talk about um, H. Richards' urging of Reinhold to come to Harvard. One of the things that was sort of central in that conversation was this claim, you fought the Deweyites a long time. Right, and, and so some scholars in this field have like used that Reinhold's decision and that kind of conversation with H. Richard and Reinhold as a way of saying, you know, hey, he remained fundamentally a pastor and to a certain extent had that activistic sensibility which was very much a part of um, not really getting too sucked into the academic life. He wasn't um, necessarily interested in um, being in a, an environment where he would have to um, deal with um, really staunch critics of religion on a regular basis. It wasn't his center of gravity. It wasn't how he understood himself. It wasn't the student population he wanted to be working with, any number of other things. Um, and I don't know, I think it, it, it's important to just kind of keep in mind that, um, that it says something about his identity. It's also the case, though, that when you look at a figure like his brother H. Richard, um, who was known as a founding I mean, really the founder of American sociology of religion. I mean, he was someone who actually um, took, did all kinds of different programs. He did programs in St. Louis at Washington University. He, got, he was very classically trained in a much more academic vein. And so it's very easy to look at the two brothers and say, well, you know, does that training then have something to do with the kind of temperament that H. Richard had, which was much more cautious, much more academic, somewhat more reserved, very passionate and very sensitive in its own way, but not um, nearly as kind of garrulous as Reinhold's. Mm. Uh, and I go back and forth on the question of how much their training did or didn't have to do with that fundamental difference between them. I, 
at the end of the day, and I've said this in print, you know, do think it ultimately came down to, to very real differences of temperament um, that Gary Dorian sort of points to here. But the question of the doctorate is a really important one. I mean, you know, d does academic training have the p capacity to sort of beat out of people the prophetic voice, or does it accentuate it? Like, and in a divinity school context, you know, like, how do we grapple with that when we're training our students? What's the range of skills they need? H how does that differ from a purely academic track? Um, Part of that just depends on who you study with and uh, what the subculture is of the institution in which you're a part. That um, Reinhold Niebuhr wrote an MA thesis on the most adorable public philosopher in the history of America, namely William James, who also didn't have a PhD. He wrote a wonderful essay called The Octopus PhD, very critical, if not an indictment, of highly professionalized uh, forms of knowledge and the disciplinary division of knowledge in the university. Uh, you read then, H. Richard Niebuhr's dissertation, The Philosophy of Ernst Trelch, 300 and some pages, one of the finest theses you'll ever read in your life. And you know Reinhold would never have the patience to write that kind of text on one figure. So out of sheer energy, talent, genius, and calling, Reinhold was Reinhold. Out of a different kind of energy, talent, genius, and calling, H. Richard was H. Richard, and it was a family affair. I'll just weigh in briefly and say, and we ought to, we ought to value both, and I Absolutely. think uh, obviously Dr. West is an example of, of, of bridging both sides of the, of the academic, uh, more disciplinary foundations, and also speaking to a, a larger public. But I would say that universities generally uh, do not translate themselves well. So to take that question and say, universities don't know how to articulate why they matter, which is increasingly of consequence today. And then I would say, I would take this project as an example. This doesn't really count, right? In, in, in my world, it does depend on the institutional context, although it's not peer review. So this, isn't, this doesn't really count if I'm gonna use this as part of my academic progression, right? And I think we've got a little bit of a problem there. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have peer review. Peer review is essential. But we also need to recognize other forms of scholarship and public scholarship. And I think that's happening, but it, it, your question is, is well taken and drives to the heart of, I think, uh, this need to bridge these two elements of what it means to be uh, an academic, a scholar, PhD or not, in both the classroom and in public life. Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, let's go here to the back, and then we'll come up front. Yes. Also, invited a lecturer to my class who, who was a Vatican priest and also a, uh, a PhD in genetics. <laughs> and it was a course in science and ethics. And then we went out to dinner afterwards and I, I said to him, you know, your view about reproduction, do you, do you ever talk to the evangelicals? And he said, oh, God, no. He said, all they do is quote the Bible. As his talk was much more like Aquinas. It was very first principles. And, you know, you can disagree with his first principles, but, you know. So when I saw the movie, I was thinking it was very little about Niebuhr and any interpretive material, or biblical material. Uh, 
was he in a tradition of liberation theology at that time? That what we would call today, or did you make a? Did he not do much biblical citations? Did you know? Could you could you clarify that a little bit? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think one way to come at this right is just to say that. Um, it's just to say that the, the kind of, I mean, the way that scholars have de described the, the sort of intellectual project that Niebuhr was engaged in is as a form of kind of neo-orthodoxy. And of course, they distinguish between kind of Bardian neo-orthodoxy and a, an American version that really isn't um, the same project, um, but that has kind of liberal um, dimensions. It's very influenced, actually, by um, Protestant liberalism. And so Gary Dorian calls it a form of neoliberalism, which is now not a term that really captures it in the ways that, that it's intended to. Um, <laughs> but the point is that these folks remain very much kind of in the liberal stream. And it's also, I think, important to recognize that to the extent that they are influenced by Bart and Tillich, very strongly by Tillich, this is a very modernistic project, right? And as a result, um, it can seem kind of very bare bones um, to folks who are looking for a more robust text-based or church-oriented or heart-centered tradition. Um, and so I would just say that um, this is one of the reasons why um, some people in, in the middle decades of the 20th century and beyond have said, hey, you know, this is ultimately too intellectualized a faith to really be taken up in large numbers. It's, 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 it's hard for people to get access to as Gary, I mean, as a, as a, one person of the film says um, it's the sin element is you know forbidding for some, um, and and I actually have come to to think that that that, that may have been true for 1950s America, um, but that in the moment that we're living in now, the the Niebuhr brothers have um, a particular kind of really wonderful way of handling problems about doubt, um, of handling anxieties about sort of what it is to be a modern person and to be in a pluralistic society where you're dealing often with people who don't necessarily share your own views? Like how do we hold deep faith commitments while at the same time talking to people who don't hold those same commitments, right? And so in some respects, I think the, I think the relevance of this thought is actually much more obvious at this moment than it might have been in 1950s America. I don't know if that situation, like situating of it helps you, but, but I, you're right. I mean, you know, what you're saying is actually true and it's partially because this is a kind of modernistic project in a weird way. Would you? Oh, no, I, I, yeah. I, I, I'd agree. Okay. Yes, absolutely. I would want to argue that uh, Niebuhr is very biblically centered. You go back yeah. to the nature and destiny of man, his spelling out of the uh, Christian way of uh, thinking and living and comparing it to the other traditions which are present. But his uh, understanding of the Bible is informed by higher uh, criticism. And uh, you can see this difference also when you uh, compare uh, Tillich and Niebuhr, right. that they were very good friends, but they differed at this point. Right. Niebuhr never wanted to go in the direction of philosophy. Yes. No, I think that's absolutely critical. And actually, the, the one thing that might also help is to point out that, that Niebuhr prided himself on sort of um, basically um, emphasizing the Hebraic content of the Christian tradition, right? And that's a link to this, this project, right, that you're, that you're pointing to. And that explains, in part, his very good reading of Abraham Heschel and his closeness um, to Heschel. Yeah. 
-hmm. So that's another kind of dimension of what you're saying, Preston, but that's right, I think. And, and I would just add, and consistent with his lack of a PhD, he always understood himself as a pastor. He insisted, I'm a pastor. I'm not really an academic theologian. I mean, he's brilliant in so many ways. And I think you can read him also as preaching to both individuals but also to nations and empires. And his texts are shot, his texts are shot through with biblical references and two of his excellent collections, Beyond Tragedy and Discerning the Signs of the Times of his sermons uh, that he kind of turns into sermonic essays. And then the volume that Ursula Niebuhr puts together, Justice and Mercy, his collection of prayers. And then he, at the end, there's this uh, address that he gives the hazards, uh, hazards and difficulties of the Christian ministry. So he's very, and you've got to remember, he's training seminarians, who, most of whom would have become pastors. So he's very rooted in it, but it's, a, it's an observation that stands in terms of the film. I think it's also true that Niebuhr, like most liberal Protestant theologians, including the neo-Orthodox ones, are the ones who break from liberal theology but remain liberals in the way in which H. Richards said, you still view religion as something that enables human powers. So you're still concerned with how individuals are empowered by these religious narratives. That Niebuhr was impressed by the authority of science, but he had an underdeveloped philosophy of science. Now that has something to do with training, because when you're an autodidact, there's holes. No matter how genius, brilliant you are, there's holes when you don't get trained. And the same is true about the ecclesiology that I think Brother Stanley made, Professor Howard's underdeveloped ecclesiology, even though he's in church every Sunday. Um, I thought that the letter from the parishioner in Detroit was quite moving. And I'm wondering, did he keep up any connection with Detroit as he went along? And do you see any ways where that connection might have influenced his later work? Jeremy has an answer to that one. <laughs> oh, I, that's a, I haven't actually been asked that question, how much he stayed in connection with Detroit. One thing, one thing I will say that's um, tangential to your question, but I think important to mention, is that Niebuhr had lots of correspondence with people from across the country. So I'm not, I can't comment specifically about the Detroit experience, but he got letters from all over uh, the United States, and he responded. Uh, from backcountry preachers to, I can recall, a letter that was sent to him by um, a young girl who was about to give her uh, high school graduation speech. And she asked Niebuhr for advice. This is in 1962 or 63, and Niebuhr responds and says, we're in an age of promise and peril. So it wouldn't surprise me if he remained connected in that way, but I don't, it's a really excellent question uh, specific to Detroit. It looks like Jeremy maybe does have the answer, or an answer. When Niebuhr's Festschrift was done, he wrote an intellectual autobiography at the front of the, the Festschrift collection. Um, and he talked about the Detroit experience as determining everything else that came after. So he saw it as being at the heart of, of his projects afterward. Um, you definitely see that um, moral man and immoral society. It's a product of dealing with um, the, the politics, particularly the race politics of a city like Detroit. Right, so that, I think that was deeply determinative. Um, now, did he maintain you know, strong connections with particular parishioners through the years? Um, I'm not inclined to think so. Maybe I'm missing something. 
but I do know that those encounters uh, shaped him at a, at a very deep level. Um, and I think, you know, frankly, his drive to communicate, his drive to say things in plain ways that resonate with people, that comes from being in a pulpit for 16 years at a church. So I think, I think Detroit looms very large in, in Niebuhr as a whole. Uh, hi, I just wanted to say first, I had the pleasure of taking the Niebuhr Brothers course with Professor Gaston last semester. Really enjoyed it, became enamored with both of the brothers. Um, and Moral Man and Moral, Moral Society in particular. Um, and I actually had a question, kind of touching back on Detroit. Uh, Professor West, in, your, in the video and in, in the, in the forward to the second edition, um, I really resonate with how you see Reinhold as being prophetic, but also understanding the different kinds of Niebuhrs. You know, I wondered if you resonated with uh, Therese Delisio's account of him never taking a risk professionally for uh, just to be anti-racist. And then uh, Professor Cohn as well, just really not seeing, seeing Reinhold as uh, seeing black suffering, but never internalizing it for himself. And so I wondered why, you know, if that was something that you understood in the same way, or um, if there was a reason why you maybe weren't a little harder on Reinhold in these two accounts. Oh, no, I, I try to be hard on him in my own way. Um, <laughs> you see, there's a difference between being a anti-racist in a personal, interpersonal way in a white supremacist Detroit, that's already a risk. And he took that risk. He had to cut against the grain of his congregation. He had to cut against the grain of his community. That's very different than looking at the world through the lens of those who have been enslaved and Jim Crowed. So that white supremacy actually is the major mediating lens through which you view America. He had the lens of a first-generation voluntary immigrant who conceives of America in a certain kind of way. And it's hard for him to go to the Jim Crow bus as soon as he arrives from Germany and go to the front and me and Preston and Connie in the back. It's hard for him to conceive of that intellectually. So what does he do? He does the second best thing. I'm going to be an anti-racist, I'm going to be true to the prophetic force of the, uh, of the biblical scripture and so forth. I'm going to be in solidarity with those in the back of that Jim Crow bus. But I'm not going to look at the world through the lens of those in that Jim Crow bus. That's different. And, you know, I can understand it. I, I can push him and so forth. But I also applaud his courage. Courage comes in forms of gradations and degrees. You know, everybody's not going to be John Brown. I understand that. And so, in that sense, he, he, he did what he did, and we criticize him. Cohn is, is right to push him in the cross and the lynching tree. But you also acknowledge what he did do, because there was a whole lot of vanilla brothers and sisters who were indifferent and callous to black people. And that's not Reinhold at all. That's not Reinhold at all. He may have moved slow with a Burkean sensibility in regard to Brown v. Board in 1954, organic change, what I was talking about in the film. 
I'm critical of that. I think that's, that, that's not enough. That's not enough. Preston, you say the same thing, all right? Yes. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Preston said it, you know I'm. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You know, on this question, I do think that one thing that this film does that is potentially important for our thinking about how to imagine Niebuhr's legacy is just to realize that Gary Dorian is absolutely right. He did not have a structural understanding mm. of racism. But moral man in immoral society has the roots of a structural understanding in it. Yes, it does. Right? And so Miles Horton, Right? Martin Luther King, right? They can read Moral Man in a Moral Society in a different context of a different generation and find a structural, like the beginnings of a structural understanding. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I think that's what this film does that is so incredibly important. It starts to put those pieces together, right? It gets someone like Andrew Young telling us, right, that, that his own experience was that King was steeped in Niebuhr. And that's really different than anything that we have in terms of claims about the relationship, at least to my knowledge. Yeah, Preston and then Richard Parker, I know you want to get in here, yes. Uh, Niebuhr does say in Moral Man and Moral Society that uh, blacks or African Americans should never rely on whites to get at the truth about racism. And he suggests that blacks have to do it themselves. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, King and those picked it up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Richard. This is Richard Parker from the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, I'm surprised that the name Donald Trump has not been mentioned this whole evening. And I mean it quite seriously, because I was raised by an Episcopal clergyman. Uh, and I thought in the 1950s and early 1960s, based on the magazines in our house, that everyone read Time, Newsweek, and Christianity in Crisis. <laughs> what I was taught was that Niebuhr was a theologian of power speaking to power. He could do it in part because he was part of a mainline Protestant tradition that was still enjoying hegemonic influence in the society. I'm still part of that tradition, but it's a tradition now that represents 15% of American adults, and it lacks any of the trappings or even the will to power institutionally. And with Donald Trump, there is a question of what will become of American democracy that is as fundamental as anything any of us in this room has faced. And we need to think about the lessons of speaking to power, speaking about power. And I thought in particular, as you were asking the question, how would you summarize Niebuhr's uh, to a young person, of one of the last speeches that John F. Kennedy gave, which was at the dedication of the Robert Frost Library in Amherst in October 1963. And the line I've always loved was he said, we must always respect men of power, but we must equally respect men who question power because it is they who determine whether we control power or power controls us. And we're in a moment in American history where the latter is a very real possibility. Thank you, Richard. I'm back here. Yeah, I just wanted to echo a question. Thank you. Hello? Okay. Also, I just wanted to thank you for having the event tonight. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I'm trying to think about how to present this question. So, 
it seems to me that in this day and age, technology really floods our experience of what we're seeing in the outside world. And for that matter, I'm led to, um, sorry. Um, so uh, it seems that we're really flooded through technology. And if you're liberal, if you're conservative, you tend to see your side of the story through Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is that you have. Um, what I'm really curious about is that in this day and age where social media kind of reigns supreme in spreading news and information, that what really happens to intellectual writings um, where in Niebuhr's day seem to really influence politics, right? Um, and it seems to me that for the reason of this social media flooding, that uh, intellectual writings just barely and not enough leave the academic field. And that seems to me very problematic. And I just, I, I'm a little concerned. It it's, seems to me that there needs to be some median where there's an intellectual writer that's able to get out to the masses and um, is accessible by both sides because this divide uh, feels too great. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying this is the, um, tonight is the uh, third of about 25 dates that I'll do with this film around the country between now and the first of, of April. And I found, I want to be honest and say I found it refreshing that we got through the first 15 or 20 minutes without the word Donald Trump coming up. Because inevitably it's come up night after night. Everybody wants to talk about what, what does all this mean? Where does, where does Weinhold fit in the midst of all this? I, I think to answer your question, all I can think about is that um, is that uh, Donald Trump is the first president who actually would, would credit tweeting as part, of the, uh, as part of the center of what he's been able to accomplish. Uh, the truth of the matter is you ask whether or not, where's the sort of like the deeper intellectual writing. I'm under a lot of pressure um, from my end to be able to keep it short and to the point, sort of Twitter size ideas is what people tell me day in and day out is all that people care about anymore. And I resist it and fight back as best as I can, but I think it's unique that people actually will sit down and read a treatment like a Beyond Tragedy or a Moral Man or something. They, re they really want it short and sweet. Trump understood that from the very beginning when he, he went on this campaign, and I think that's really part and parcel of why he won. I don't like it. It's the reality that I have to live with every single day as I try to communicate these kind of ideas and, film and, and content to an audience that wants less and less and more broad, broadly spread, uh, but less and less deeper content. And it's very frustrating for me, uh, but in a sense, hopefully we have, through the film, the opportunity, and the book that's coming out, the opportunity to maybe have a little Newberian revival over the course of this spring and we lead up to the film. That's my hope. There it is, Donald Trump, tweeting. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't know if we live in an era where we can, I mean, there are certainly um, Dr. West and others who have a large voice in public, and yet it's more diffuse. I think that's, um, that's for sure. I try, this is a limited way of doing it, but with undergraduates, and I see lots and lots of undergraduates, and you know, that the, the reigning wisdom right now is that a typical undergraduate has a seven or eight second attention span. That's all you can do with them. And so what I do is I just try to shame them. And I say, <clears throat> really? You want to be insulted in that way? 
that you can only pay attention to something for eight seconds, uh, let's try to work on that. I think you can do better than that. So part of it is really, and I'm being somewhat facetious here, but somewhat back on us and back on young people to, you know, some of these media are okay, but to also just resist that kind of idea. And if I was a 20-year-old or 18-year-old and somebody said you have an eight-second attention span, I would try to resist that. Um, but I don't know that I have a very sharp answer beyond that. It just strikes me, too, that uh, in the age of Donald Trump, we have to be very um, suspicious of the notion of fetishizing him yes. and describing magical powers as if he's some kind of isolated moral monster. He's a product of our culture. He's a product of our empire. He's a product of our civilization. And when you talk about examples, Kant said examples are the go-card of judgment, critique of pure reason. And what I mean by that is, is that in a moment of spiritual blackout like our own, which is a relative eclipse of integrity, honesty, decency, the neoliberal soul craft is one of smartness, dollars, and getting over by any means the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. There's no integrity there at all. And he's a, a symbol and a symptom, and he can mobilize fellow citizens in his right-wing nationalism or neo-fascism, however you want to characterize it, you see. But when we look at a neighbor, whether you agree politically or ideologically or theologically, what cannot be denied is his integrity, his courage, his consistency. That's what we need. That's the anti-Trump in terms of the culture, in terms of the depths of conceptions of what it is to be human in a moment in which markets are running amok and corporate greed is, is out of control and a whole host of other things, patriarchy, xenophobia, hatred, contempt, all the things that have to do with adolescent sensibilities, childish orientations, and Thrasymachus triumphing over Socrates in Plato's Republic, might making right as opposed to intellectual integrity having some gravitas. Now that for me is an anti-Trump move before we even get into the politics. Before you even get into the politics. Because Aristotle says it's ethos, logos, and pathos. The logos is the argument, pathos is the passion, but the ethos is the integrity of the speaker. Because people can say a whole lot of things and use all kind of words, left wing, center, or right, and still lack integrity. That's not Reinhold Niebuhr. That's just not who he was. When he shifted to become a liberal, he was a Cold War liberal, consistent also. The irony of American history remains a classic, even though he's no longer talking about the hypocrisies, he's talking about ironies. That's a shift. That's a major shift. When he was working with Norman Thomas, he was full of integrity. He was a hardcore socialist against FDR, against the New Deal, with John Dewey and Norman Thomas and A.J. Musty and all the other left-wingers against the liberals. So that kind of integrity is something that I think for our students especially, yeah. we, they need to see that exemplified. Not purity, but just integrity. People trying to, to be honest. Yeah. You know, that, that's subversive in a moment of such pervasive mendacity. Just trying to be honest. Sorry to go on so long. Well, I wonder if, Dr. West, what would you, I mean, I hesitate to, to, to speculate about what Niebuhr would think, but I think picking up on your point mm -hmm. that Niebuhr would say, don't kid yourselves. We all bear responsibility for this election, Ooh. right? I mean, I think that's your point, that's but I think right. we have to be even more pointed about it. The entertainment culture, the decadent culture, the racist, the misogynist culture that we all participate in, 
whether it's by complacency or actively, he would also say there are varying degrees of that participation, absolutely. But is that part of where you're driving? I'm curious, or if, how you would read Niebuhr, because I think that's where I would come at this, is that I think he would say, and this is what is part of his integrity, we all are part of it. Let's not isolate it, and I really appreciate your comments about let's not try to push it over there to the other. You know, on this question about media culture, um, we had the good fortune of having Gustav Niebuhr visit um, my pluralism class today to talk about his experiences um, writing about pluralism in a book called Beyond Tolerance um, that was really um, came together after years of being a reporter on religion for the New York Times. And I see that he would like to talk about media. <laughs> so let's, let's see what he's got to say about this. <laughs> Thank you very much. And uh, actually, I have a, uh, a word of appreciation um, a, a reflection and then an anecdote. In terms of appreciation, I'd like to thank Martin Doblemeyer for this film. I, I found it very moving and I hope that it, that it will reach as broad an audience as possible. Thank now, you. yes, the, um, a reflection on, uh, I've been trying to think how I want to phrase this. I think that sometimes there, there's some unsung people in uh, my great uncle's background that deserve to be recognized because they certainly contributed to his life and his, uh, his thinking. And one is his mother, Lydia Niebuhr, who was the daughter of a, uh, a Midwestern uh, preacher and brought the, the strengths of the, uh, and the imagination of um, the parsonage uh, to bear on his early adult life and his time in Detroit. And then if you think to, back to the photographs, which were so well and so nicely included of uh, Ursula Keppel Compton, who married my great uncle, and became Ursula Niebuhr, that was a formidable, formidable marriage. A, a woman of enormous strength and imagination uh, it was my good fortune to know her for many years, and uh, I have no doubt whatsoever that she brought a great deal uh, to that uh, to their household, as well as uh, his daughter, Elizabeth Sifton, who is uh, a very gifted and important person in her own right. As well, I should also uh, add Reinhold's sister, Holden Niebuhr, who taught for many years at McCormick Seminary. Now, a word that may not be hopeful, but should be inspiring, an anecdote. I think Reinhold did anticipate Donald Trump, but not in a way of despair by any means, although that's easy, I would say, to feel that way. But Reinhold died slowly, unfortunately. He was out in, he and Ursula were out in Stockbridge, living in their home there. And he occupied a bed in the back of the house, a big bed, and he went through, oh, two or three years of very gradually dying from all these strokes. But he did overlap with uh, the presidency of Richard Nixon. And there was a time toward the very end, which the TV was on in uh, Reinhold's bedroom, and Nixon came on the TV, and Reinhold raised himself up on his, uh, his elbows, which was not easy at that time. And he looked at the TV and he said, that bastard. <laughs> Thank you.
I guess I just, um, Helen, I was thinking about your comments about sin. Um, and it, it strikes me that there is a way to recast that, perhaps, um, the way Professor um, West has in terms of thinking about complexity and students. And one way of resisting is trying to persuade students that there aren't a lot of easy answers and to try to help them feel some degree of comfort with discomfort and uncertainty, including in the face of interacting with others who do not share their commitments, whatever those commitments are. And I think for those of us who are at universities, that's one concrete thing that is attainable and, and, and worth trying. Yes, or at least yeah. that's some, a source of hope I try to find. Yeah, that's a great, yeah, that's a great reminder, I think. I mean, one of the, it's also akin to what I see is really central to the Niebuhr project, which is, you know, that, that really we don't have to be deeply, deeply uncomfortable with doubt. We have to learn to live aside it and to recognize its constructive capacity as part of a sort of balance and just as part of the process of being not infinite Right, it is part of what it means. <laughs> um, Shane, do you want to get in this? Thank you. It just go off now. Thank you for a, a wonderful film and a, and a wonderful event. And at this point in the evening, I just find myself very curious uh, about how you think Reinhold Niebuhr will be received by young 21st century Americans. So I would ask that you know the three of you who teach. How do your students respond when you invoke Niebuhr? And, and Martin, you mentioned uh, the prospect of a Niebuhrian revival. Uh, and I wondered if you would speculate about what that might look like. Well, I turned the Honors College into a little, as some of my students affectionately call it, the Nieborhood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, uh, at first, they don't like it. At first, they, this, what is, this, he's saying two things at once. He's, he's confusing. He doesn't know. That's their first reaction. Then as you, as you work through it and, and walk them through it, they, this guy makes a lot of sense. So I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, with students. I mean, that's been my experience. And so I've, I've very much enjoyed uh, teaching a range of, of Niebuhr texts to students. And, and yeah, he's, he's complex and difficult because they're not used to thinking in that paradoxical both-and way, typically. But they come around to it, and they really appreciate, I think, the way in which, I said this the other night, too, the way in which he sort of allows you to be human, the imperfections of being a human, without the kind of, I mean, there is the silencing critique, and I'm very aware of that, but the imperfections of being a human and the imperfections of society and nations and empires um, and the cri criticism of that, and it starts to really make sense for them to help, I think, empower them. But, uh, so I've had good success. Just quickly, yeah. I think the important thing, again, is to always situate him within a tradition. There's no Niebuhr without Augustine. There's no Niebuhr without Kierkegaard. There's no Niebuhr without Walter Rauschenbusch. There's no Niebuhr without W.H. Auden. The people he's in conversation with, the dead as well as the living when he was alive. And we do the same thing. So when we introduce our students to Niebuhr, you are introduced to a whole gallery 
of voices of the dead coming at you to unsettle you in such a way that you will experience some profound intellectual anxiety and still muster the courage to keep going. That's part of his legacy, it seems to me. I would, um, it's gonna be curious. I have to say, we started the first night at uh, Union Theological Seminary. And uh, of course the reception was very positive. That's home grounds. It was a home game that we opened up. Uh, um, down in New York, and uh, last night was Boston College, and tonight here at Harvard. It's going to be interesting as I begin to move out more towards the west, places like Pittsburgh, we're coming out to, to um, Boise, um, where there's a totally different perception of what happened in November. And I think it's naive of me to presume uh, that there could be not, that there wouldn't be some pushback and resentment to what this film represents. And for me, it's mostly, I think what happened, you, there's all kinds of political questions that happened. We're going to be writing books for the longest period of time about what happened in November. But to me, as I've talked to so many people, my own family, everybody I can talk to about this, I think so much of it is, comes out of fear. There was just a deep-rooted fear in this country that something had gone off, the, the country had gone off the rails, and there's a desperate sense of trying to get it back on some kind of rail, even if this is the only other possible, possible answer to it. And even though I'm very distraught about what happened, I, 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 I couldn't believe what happened in November. Uh, I should have. That's my fault. I should have seen all the discomfort and distress that was going on uh, other, with other fellow Americans who believe in this country and care about this country, who read the Bible and care about the Bible, and they just come at it from a very different place. I need to listen more to them. But we're bringing this film all across the country. We're going to have these kind of conversations. I'll do everything I can to ask them to go back and pick up a copy. Last night, on the night before last, we were in New York, and this man here was on his way, after the event that we did at Union, he was on his way to be interviewed. He left our little gathering to go and be interviewed by Sean Hannity. And I said, before you go, Cornell, take a copy of the film <laughs> and, give, and give that film to I Sean Hannity. To I handed it to him, too. And, I did. And yeah, uh, we have a lot of work to do. And Niebuhr becomes, in many ways, a tool to talk about that. I may not get the same results from everybody who watches this film that I might get here. But the truth of the matter is, my responsibility now, in good faith, is to bring this film to as many people as possible, open up the conversation, and ultimately accept the fact that, in many cases, they did what they did, and they're voting, cast their vote, because they believed in something central to them, and they cared, too, about America. We may have a different vision, but they cared, too, about this country. So there's a big chasm to, and if I understand that it's out of their fear for what this country had become, rather than sort of chastising them and saying how they've got it all wrong, I think we'll probably have a more healthy conversation. And I think maybe Niebuhr has a lot to say about that. From a Christian point, be not afraid, I think will be the motto that I'll carry with me for the next 24 events. Let me just speak quickly to this question. Um, I've had the good fortune here at HDS of three times teaching a course on the Niebuhr brothers. Um, and I love to teach the Niebuhr brothers in tandem because Already Reinhold Niebuhr has a way of sort of sending you down a rabbit hole and around the bend and to the point where you're looking at problems from all these new perspectives that you hadn't inhabited before. But when you put the dialogue between the Niebuhr brothers at the center, then that sort of kaleidoscopic quality is increased exponentially. Um, and so what I tell my students is that I hope you will come out of this course with conversation partners in these two thinkers who will always be 
part of your inner dialogue. Um, and I've never met a student who didn't, you know, to some extent come out very, very changed in terms of the way that they think about themselves, their world, who the other is, how we create change, those kinds of questions. Um, but I've also just been struck by how when you put the Niebuhr brothers and their very intense dialogue with one another together, I mean, Reinhold Niebuhr basically relied on his brother H. Richard as the only critic that really mattered. H. Richard, Reinhold's entire career can be traced through tacking in response to H. Richard's criticisms. And part of what was going on is that it was emboldening for him, right? It was possible to not worry too much about what this person had to say about that book or that person had to say about that book because he trusted the judgment of his brother and he followed his criticisms like through all of his constructive projects. I mean, it's really possible to do that, which and I'm actually working on doing that in a book about the relationship between the two brothers that puts this sort of front and center. Um, but what I find is related to what we said earlier about the extent to which this project may have been hard for some people to adopt as their own in 1950s America, but we're not living in 1950s America anymore. Like we're living in a much more complex world. And despite the fact that there are many politicians since Reagan all the way up that would like to take us back to 1950s America, they're not going to, to win on that, right? Time is going to wear them out, right? And that's the message that millennials are sending to me in my classrooms, right? They're saying, we are diverse, our identities are complex, they're hybrid. When we talk about religion, we have to talk about it for a long time for you to understand exactly how complex our religious lives are. Secularism is part of the mix. Multiplicity is all, what it's all about. Questions about relativism, how we view ourselves, how we view this complicated world. And the dialogue between the Niebuhr brothers is just smack on the kinds of issues that they're dealing with. So when I talk to Jeremy, who you know, is younger than I am and has some perspective on the generation of students that I'm teaching that I don't necessarily have, like we actually do believe that this, that this story, this legacy, and that these thinkers have like real staying power at this moment for a group of folks who are grappling with you know, a set of issues that they are uniquely positioned to speak to. So. Film is outside. Yes, oh yes. Okay, so you all have been great to come out and, and, and stick with us this long to the Q&A. We have so appreciated this turnout. We hope that you found this evening helpful and we've got copies of the film for sale out in the hall and, and the book that Jeremy is getting ready to publish um, in, a, in a few um, months. So thank you again. We really, really appreciate your time. Thank you.